Um, If you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to the Gospel of John. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, We're kicking off um, a brand new series today. I'm really excited about, um, really excited to look at this Gospel. It's going to take us at least through Easter. Um, It's going to take us through Easter and uh, and hopefully maybe to the end of April um, and before we start something new. But I want to just look at this passage of scripture this morning and dive in. So this series is going to be a little bit different than what we typically uh, would see. Uh, We're going to look at and encounter people throughout the gospel of John that didn't believe in Jesus, that didn't believe. We're going to look at how Jesus interacts with these people. And so I want to just start out this morning. How many of you in here, by a show of hands, have ever heard of a gospel track? A gospel track. You've ever seen one, you've laid eyes on one, you've handed one out to somebody uh, or something. You've seen them. Now, there's a picture. I think I got a picture of one. Now, uh, a trifold, um, a gospel track is how I was taught to share the gospel as a young child. Uh, Think of it like a a small trifold. Um, It's a pamphlet that explains the basic points of the Bible. Um, Now, go off the screen to a different one so they don't, they don't try to read it and don't listen to me. Perfect. So the gospel track was a, a basic pamphlet to explain the basic outlines of the gospel. And now there was no end to the number or type of gospel track that there was. Uh, they ranged from very no-nonsense, give-it-to-me-alliterated versions, which were my favorite, because they were all alliterated and they all started with the same letter. So those were my favorite. Um, but we had creative adaptations of cultural icons. Uh, there were a There was a fake $10 bill that I remember, Um, and on the back of it, it said, here's the real tip, trust Jesus. Um, I remember one specifically that was so in your face um, that uh, you couldn't get away uh, from like, you're a sinner and going to hell is what it said on the front of it. Uh, But then there was one that my best friend, uh, my best friend and I, um, his name is David Heaton, Uh, We grew up together. We were born 16 days apart. Uh, Their parents actually met at my parents' wedding um, and got married. And and so David and I grew up together. Um, His uncle ended up marrying my aunt, and so we were somewhat related down the line. Uh, But he and I used to go with our youth group on visitations on Thursday night, and this is how we learned to share the gospel with people. And there were tracts that we used to hand out that we called Chick tracks. Chick tracks. They, they were the deluxe track with all of, all of the bells and whistles on a trifold piece of paper. It was the one that had the images on it. Anybody, anybody like picture books, right? So I didn't want to read when I was a young teenager. I just wanted to show people the picture and then try to explain it to them. Now, there was this one specific chick track that we called it that was, um, it was a multi-page Um, comic book uh, that had this really scary picture of demons coercing people to listen to Christian rock music and coercing people to, to read other versions of the Bible that were not the King James version of the Bible. These were our chick tracks. These were our deluxe tracks that we used. Now, we learned we learned that 
you take these tracks and you can give them to your waitress at the restaurant. Or, or if you were scared of people, you could leave them in the public restroom somewhere. Or if you were really good, you, you rented a good Christian movie from Blockbuster, right? And, or some secular movie that your family just rented. And then you put that gospel track right inside that container and you dropped it in the return slot, right? That was the way that you didn't have to interact with somebody with the gospel track. Now, my personal favorite, though, was a pastor um, showed us how you can hold the gospel track outside of your car window and drive a cool 35 miles an hour and drop it at just the right time. And it would land at somebody's feet who was standing on the edge of the road. That was one I vividly will never, ever, ever forget. Now, I wish I would be standing up here in front of you this morning and be completely telling you jokes, but I'm not. I'm not. This is exactly how I learned to share the gospel. Now, I'm not sitting up here and dogging on the people who create gospel tracks. Some of them are a little corny, uh, but they've been used Now, I do want to share with you something about it, though. If someone, in that moment of interaction, if someone trusted Christ as you walked them through a presentation from that gospel track, there were certain things that you were supposed to say to them as follow-up. Certain things that were printed nice, nicely on the back for you to just follow along, right? If someone trusted Christ, you were supposed to place an emphasis on Bible reading or prayer or church attendance. Or you were supposed to say things like, now that you've accepted Christ, you're saved forever. Now that you've trusted Christ, you're guaranteed to go to heaven because you read off of the back of this little piece of paper. God promises to never leave you. He promises to not forsake you. No one can pluck you from the Father's hand. These were all things that were listed on this gospel track. And so from here on out, you are saved no matter what. So welcome to the family of God. As I have seen over and over and over and over in my life, this little piece of paper used and abused by churches. So that you can come back to your church and be like, yeah, 25 people prayed this week for my piece of paper. You want to know what the sad reality is? Is that in January of this year, so two months ago, The Christian Research Institute put out some statistics that, in my opinion, were were disgusting about Christianity. They said that 80% of Americans label themselves as Christians. 80% of Americans label themselves as Christians. They say that of that 80%, That 50% of them said that they prayed a prayer from a gospel track. And because of that, they believe that they're going to heaven because that's what they were told. However, that 50% of people have no regular presence of any kind in any church service at all. That same number, that same 50% 
believe that the Bible is wrong about what it teaches. And of that 80%, two-thirds, 66% have a lifestyle or a worldview that is different than that of what the Bible describes as Christian faith. These people hear the message of Jesus and about the need to be saved and about the need to come to Christ and they think, oh, I've been there, I've done that. They think, I prayed the prayer, I went to the class, I got baptized so I'm good because my grandma was there at my confirmation. And that's how they see it. But what I want us to see today is that the Bible speaks frequently, frequently about a kind of faith that is superficial, a faith that doesn't go deep, a faith that never truly saved at all. And the tragedy, the tragedy for a lot of people is that their superficial faith has immunized them from understanding their need for the real gospel. Do you guys in here understand how immunizations work? How, how getting a shot works? That they inject you with a little bit of the disease. Now, usually it's a dead or an impotent version, so something that's not going to kill you, or it's not supposed to anyways. So that's how the, the immunization works. Your body begins to develop an antibody so that if you are ever exposed to the real thing, you're able to resist it. Now, that's what happened with these people. They never got infected with the real gospel because they've been immunized by superficial religion, by religion. And these people often cannot believe in Jesus because they don't see the need to come to him. I want to show you how Jesus addresses these people. We start this new series today in the Gospel of John, and we're going to look at account after account after account of people who could not believe in Jesus. And for some, they were just spiritually blind. They were just spiritually blind. Where others, they wanted to believe, but for some reason they couldn't. They just could not believe. And we're going to look at how Jesus engages them do you guys know that and understand that belief is one of the major themes of the Gospel of John? John uses that word belief or believe 99 times. And he says this at the end of the book. Look at the verse on the screen. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. This is what John said to the people at the end of this book. And that's what this entire book is about. So maybe you're sitting in here this morning and maybe you, you feel like you can't believe something about the gospel, about the Bible. Or maybe you know somebody who's having trouble believing. Well, the book of John is written just for us. Just for us. And, and my hope and my prayer has been leading up to this and will continue to be that God will open our eyes to see Christ's glory through this passage, through this book. That, that we will believe in him and more than believe in him, that we would begin to adore Christ in our lives. And if we are already in a place where we believe and we're seeking him, that we would see his glory fresh and new. 
Have you guys ever realized that, that when, um, when you get too familiar with something, you forget how beautiful it really is? So my, my prayer to, to each one of us is that adoration would send each and every one of us out of this building with a, a renewed confidence in this life and a renewed confidence in sharing the gospel with people. And so I want to read, if you're not there, in, in chapter 2. And let's just start in verse number 23, so right at the end. Chapter 2, verse 23. And now when he was in Jerusalem, speaking of Jesus at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Remember that. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Look at verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And this is God's word for us today. Heavenly Father, we come to you. God, we, we ask right now that you would begin to break through the barriers in our lives, in our minds, in our, in our thoughts, in our hearts, God that we would begin to see the dangers of superficial faith and what your word tells us about how to be saved and how we can live in that light. So God, use these truths this morning to penetrate deep within our hearts. Do radical life change. God, we want sanctification to occur, not behavior modification. God, we don't want to fake it in our own strength. We want to submit to you and your word. And I ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. The first thing I want us to see this morning is the dangers of superficial faith. The dangers of superficial faith. Here we have a group of people that John is talking about that believed in Jesus, but Jesus would not give himself to them because he could see that their faith was superficial. He, he saw that they believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. He knew what was in them and he could see that their interest was a fleeting interest or a convenient belief. In their case, it was because they had seen signs and they were temporarily interested in Jesus. They were curious about what else Jesus could do for them. You know, in our day and age... This looks like people who believe because it was their background. It's the, this is the kind of people that were raised in a Christian home with parents that went to church on a regular basis. This is, this is the, the parents and the friends who believe. And so automatically we just assume we're Christians. You know, I used to go to a conference every year with myself and a couple of other pastors in Jacksonville, Florida. So up in the, the northeast uh, corner of Florida. Every year we would go to this conference and it was held at a, a massive church up there. One of the largest churches in Jacksonville. And on that church property they had a, a primary and a secondary um, education um, system for, for kids. It was a Christian school. But on top of that they also had a Christian college. Then one year we went there and a part of our task as pastors was to connect with the Christian college students. And we were to ask them a series of questions about the Bible, about Christianity. And I remember vividly a question that we interacted specifically with a group of people that was probably 12 or 15 college age students. So between 18 and maybe 22, 23 years old. 
And one of the questions that I remember asking to that group of people was, are you a Christian? Now, the college students knew that we were going around and doing this survey, and I asked the, the one individual specifically, are you a Christian? And he responded back to me, well, I'm not Jewish or Muslim, so yes. And I was baffled at first, and I, I, I was kind of caught off guard by his response because he immediately had the assumption that because he wasn't Jewish or because he wasn't a Muslim that he was automatically a Christian. He did not explain that Christianity at first, so I prompted another question. I said, so please explain to me your, your understanding of Christianity. Because the question I'm trying to ask is, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? But I place the label on it that everyone's familiar with. And he goes, well, yeah, I follow Christ because my parents took me to church. So the, the, the story just continue, continues to get worse, right? I'm a Christian because I'm not Jewish and Muslim, and now I'm a Christian because my parents took me to church. I'm like, man, I sat and was able to have a conversation with this individual, and about two hours later had the opportunity to share the gospel with him to help him understand this is what God's word says about those who follow him. And that night, I remember him praying. I remember him crying out loud to God, saying my entire life I believed that I was a Christian just because my parents were. Just because they took me to church. Just because I went to a vacation Bible school. The assumption was I'm a Christian. Someone failed in that individual's life up to that point. Someone failed to share the truth of the gospel. And unfortunately, church more often times than not, it is the church and it's the parents. The Bible's clear that the parents' first ministry is their family. And so if you're a parent or a grandparent in here, I would encourage you to talk about the gospel to your kids and to your grandkids. I would encourage you. But pastors as well, pastors, share the gospel, the true gospel that is spoken about in the Bible. We, we see here there's a group that John is describing that believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not belong to them. He, he would not entrust himself to them is what John put it. And you know, this is not the only place in Scripture that this is talked about. If you go back to the Gospel of Matthew and go to chapter number 7, you see Jesus talking and he's telling the disciples, there will be many in that day who said, Lord, Lord, but they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Why? They will say, we prophesied in your name. We healed in your name. And Jesus will say, depart from me, for I did not know you. There was no relationship with Christ. What about in the other gospel of Luke? We see it again. Luke chapter 8, Jesus gives the parable of the seeds. The parable of the seeds. Jesus talks about people who brought other people to church. That, that's who he's describing. He's talking about the people who, who started to read the Bible. He's talking about the people who wanted to join the small group. Listen, Jesus was never ever talking about the irreligious pagan or the atheist or the agnostic in Scripture. He was talking about the one that was deeply devoted to religious things. 
over and over and over in Scripture, people have been deluded in their thinking that they are saved when they are not saved. Not. He's talking about men and women and teenagers who will be shocked one day to find out that they thought they were on the narrow road that that leads to heaven, and they're not because they were never born again. Church, 50% of that, that number that I gave to you earlier, 80% of Americans believe they're Christians. And 50% believe that because they prayed a prayer on a piece of paper that they're going to heaven. They have no regular church presence. No lifestyle that mimics that of a follower of Jesus Christ. And as I sit here and I read passages like John chapter 2 and Matthew 7 and Luke chapter 8, and I think to myself, if those are not describing that group of people, then I don't know whom Jesus was talking about. I have no idea if it's not describing those. People hear statistics like these that that I gave before. The 80% of people call themselves Christians and 50% claim to have a personal relationship. And they see, oh, Christians are hypocrites. That's what people have a tendency to look at when they hear those numbers. And I look at them differently and I see something completely different. And I read that there are a lot of people who think they're Christians and they're not. And as we read this passage of scripture this morning, a question must be posed to us. John is asking us, what kind of belief saves? What kind of belief saves us? Because that's the eternally important question. balcony. That's the eternally important question. What belief saves? Online, what belief saves? We we need to have a heart check moment here this morning. We need to have a moment where we put on our spiritual seatbelts and we reflect. Do you have a kind of faith that is superficial? Or do you have a kind of faith that saved? A faith that saved. We, we in, in our Christian circles, have created a culture where millions of people are comfortable calling themselves a Christian when they're not even a follower of Jesus Christ. We, Christians, have created that culture. So is it possible that it was you? That it's possible that it's you that John is describing here? That you're in that group that just followed Christ because you wanted something else from him? Because you saw saw the miracle, and so you, you believe just because of the miracle, but you don't truly read the Bible. You're not faithful to church. You don't give. You don't serve. Is it possible? We're presented with the question here in chapter 2, but chapter 3 really gives us the answer. 
And if you note, please, please note this. In the original writings here of this book, there were no separation between chapter 2 and chapter 3. It was one continuation. And so John asked the question in chapter 2, and we see the response giving to Nicodemus in chapter 3, which means that the account of Nicodemus at the beginning of chapter 3 was the solution to the problem. It was a solution. And if there are people who believe in Jesus, that Jesus does not give himself to them, then what kind of faith saves? What kind of faith? So let's look at chapter number 3. And it says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said these things to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from, for where it goes, or where it goes. So it is with anyone who is born of the Spirit. So the second thing I want us to see is the description of saving faith. We saw the danger of superficial faith, but now we get the, the description of saving faith, of saving faith. You know, genuine, genuine faith turns on one single phrase. Genuine faith turns on one single phrase, you must be born again. You must be born again. Nicodemus was a religious man, and Jesus was telling him that despite all of his good works, despite all of his learning, his church attendance, and religious rituals, he was dead in sin. That's what Jesus was saying here. And it's where Jesus started his gospel presentation. Church, I want to mess with your theology for just a moment here. The gospel is bad news before it's good news. Did you guys catch that? The gospel is bad news before it is good news. You must recognize you are a sinner in need of a savior before you can be saved. The gospel is bad news before it is good news. And that right there is where most people miss it. Most people miss the gospel because they will never really ever grapple with bad news. They don't want to hear it. And that is exactly where Jesus started his presentation of the gospel, with the bad news. And that's where we as believers must start too. Now before you jump to any conclusions and think my pastor said to go and yell and holler and scream at somebody about their sinfulness, that's not what I said. Our sin cuts us off from God and it leaves us spiritually dead. Dead. Do you know in the Garden of Eden we looked at in the book of Genesis there Adam and Eve severed their connection with God because of sinfulness. Sin is an I problem. 
Sin is an I problem. I want to be in charge. I want to serve myself. I want others to serve me. I want all the glory. I want to be the primary point. I, I, I. Sin is an I problem. And that's the path that Adam and Eve started down back in Genesis 3. And it's the path that we all have voluntarily continued down. We were born in a state of rebellion against God. My agenda, my interests, my, my, my is so much more important to me than God. And that choice has left us as a race condemned under the curse of death according to scripture. That's what God said. The wages of sin is death. But he didn't stop there. He said, but the grace, the free gift of God, the salvation comes through Christ Jesus. Do you know that we see death at work in the world all around us? Would you guys agree with that? You see the sinful repercussions that come because of death. We see pain. We see disease, we see injustice, we see genocide. As I was writing this and I got to this point in my sermon, I could not help but think of what is going on overseas right now between Russia and Ukraine. Man's sinfulness is bringing death and destruction upon another nation. We feel even the corruption within our own selves, our weariness, our dysfunction, our own, our own death. We are under condemnation apart from being born again, apart from being born again. You know that at the end of chapter 3, John says that the wrath of God abides on those who walk in darkness, meaning those who don't follow his word And in verse number 20 of this same chapter, John talks about how those who walk in evil are lovers of darkness. Man, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that we are blinded in our own minds. He says that we're disordered in our own emotions, that we naturally curve in upon ourselves and we defile our own bodies. You get to Ephesians and he tells the people there that we were children of wrath. Children of wrath. He says that the law of death is at work in our bodily members in Romans chapter 7. Go back to the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 6 says that all of our thoughts are only evil continually. And that is why Jesus said you must be born again. That right there. You know, sin did not knock us down to God's JV team. Sin did not put us on probation or or put us on a slower track to get a mansion in heaven. Sin wiped us out. Sin wiped us out. Sinful flesh cannot hope to see the presence of God's love and grace and mercy. Our sinfulness, we we could no more hope to stand before God and hope to see his kingdom 
and that a wilted dandelion could make it through a nuclear explosion. We couldn't do it. You know, that we're never going to hear a verdict like this on humanity on Dr. Phil. You'd never hear a verdict like this on Oprah or some other talk show that you watch. You're never going to hear something like this, this verdict on Fox News or on CNN. But this is what the Bible states of us. Our sinful rebellion against God was infinitely worse than most of us have ever even imagined. Do you know, uh, does anyone in here know the name Francis Schaeffer? Aside from my wife, because I talked to her about it. Okay, a, a couple of you. Francis Schaeffer was probably one of this country's greatest apologists. And someone once asked Francis, if you were on a train and you met a complete stranger and you had one hour to share the gospel, how would you do it? Francis replied, and he said, I would spend 45 minutes on the negative so I could show that stranger the dilemma that he is morally dead. And then I would take the last 15 minutes to share hope. You know, I believe that much of our evangelistic and, and personal work today is not really clear. Well, simply because we're too anxious to get to the answer without having man realize the real cause of his sickness. We, we, we try to overcome and get to the answer of salvation before people even come to the realization that they are morally guilty before a holy God. Do you know, church, I do not want to stand before God one day and give an account as a follower knowing that something that I did or said could have led somebody straight to hell. Not just because I'm a pastor, but because I love God and I want other people to love God too. If you're sitting in this room, in the balcony, if you're sitting online, if you're listening to this, and you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You are a follower of God. We should never, ever, ever be afraid of talking about the dilemma of man when we share the gospel. If someone comes to Christ and doesn't recognize that they needed a savior, they are not going to heaven. You have to recognize that you need to be saved and why you need to be saved. You have to. If you got saved just because you thought it would be cool and fun to be in heaven, sorry. Most likely it's not going to happen. You have to understand the entirety of the gospel. I'm not saying you have to know every verse. I'm not saying that you have to have everything memorized yet. I'm not saying you have to have every single theological argument under wraps in your mind. You have to know that you need a Savior. And that happens because of your sinfulness. And so if we're avoiding telling people about sinfulness, then we're doing them a disservice. We are leading them right into the hands of Satan. That is the antithesis of what the gospel is. So church, 
Next time you have the opportunity to share the gospel, make sure that person understands sin. Make sure, do everything that you can to ensure that they understand sin, sin in their life. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again. You must be born again. Unless someone is born of water and of spirit, he will never enter the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus' reference was something to the Old Testament. When Jesus said of water and spirit, he was speaking back to Ezekiel chapter 36. And it's going to come to the screen for you. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the spirit or the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Christian, you need to be washed You need to be made new. You need a heart that desires godliness. You know God is not just after obedience. He's after a whole new kind of obedience. One that grows from our desire to be with him. That's what he's looking for. Look look now at verse number 9. Look what happens. Nicodemus goes, how can this be? And so Jesus says, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so that the Son of Man may be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John begins yet again to reference the Old Testament. Now I want to try and explain this to you as best as possible. When he said that the the serpent had to be lifted up in the desert and the Son of Man had to be lifted up, he was referencing back to Numbers chapter 21. Some of you may know the story. The people of Israel were headed into the promised land and they forgot the kindness and the goodness of God and so they started to become impatient. They began to doubt God. They, They began to complain and their hearts started to wander again to idols. It was supposed to be a picture of sinfulness in mankind here that we see in Numbers 21. We we doubt God. We disbelieve in God. We grow dissatisfied with his ways and our hearts begin to wander towards other things. You guys ever experienced that in your life? God, I'm not satisfied with you. I need romance. I need money. I need, I need drugs. I need alcohol. There's, there's something that we will go to because we're not satisfied. And we will look for comfort in other things. And so in Numbers 21, God sends fiery serpents into the camp. Vipers of death. He sends in everywhere, thousands of them. The people begin to wail in pain 
and they begin to cry out for God. And that right there was supposed to be the picture of the curse of sin, the pain, the brokenness of life. So God in his mercy tells Moses to make a bronze image of one of the serpents and to put it high on a pole on the top of a hill. And he tells people that if they could get their eyes to look upon it, to look in faith, you would be healed. So I want you to imagine with me this morning thousands of people riling in pain, gasping for air, trying to crawl in desperation to get a view of the serpent. A view. And Jesus said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just like this image of the serpent, Jesus would be lifted to a cross for our sins, so that all who looked to him would be saved. You know, it used to confuse me as I read this passage of Scripture, And I was a little bothered at first because I'm like, why would John describe Jesus in the same sentence as a serpent? Why is he not described as the lamb? Why? Why is he compared to? But then I realized that the serpent was a result of our sin. The the serpent was a result of sin. And Jesus was, was to take the serpent upon himself. We sinned, and so the viper of death had to bite Jesus. He had to take our sinfulness, just as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become His righteousness. He became the serpent for us. He was put on a pole for us. And because of that, we come to one of the greatest most well-known verses in all of Christianity, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believed in Him would not perish, but would have everlasting life or eternal life, as some versions read. You know, Charles Spurgeon said that I think I may have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending me that one snowy storm Sunday down a small alley. I turned down a small street, Charles Spurgeon says, and he he says he came to a little primitive Methodist church. And he felt like he was drawn to go inside. And as he entered that church, there was only about a dozen people there. And that the pastor of that church did not even show up because he had been snowed in. And so this this older gentleman steps forward. and, And Spurgeon thought to himself, this is the group of people that sing so loudly it makes people's heads hurt. And he said, but I I couldn't leave because I wanted to know how I could be saved. And I was hoping that one of those 12 people could tell me how to be saved. And Spurgeon talks about how this old, old, almost decrepit 
thin-looking man who was a shoemaker gets up onto the platform to preach, and he says, in my opinion, the preacher better be well taught because that man was really stupid. And he said that he was obligated to stick only to reading the Bible because he didn't know how to explain it. And that man opened up the word of God and he said, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Spurgeon said the man did not even pronounce the words rightly. He said, but it didn't matter not. Because that man began to talk in his accent and and he, he said, I saw a glimpse of hope for the very first time in my life. As the man said, this text is simple indeed. Simple indeed. Look. Now look in. Don't take a deal of pain. Look. Doesn't take you lifting your finger or your foot. Just look. A man needn't go to college to look. A man could be the biggest fool in the world and still look. Spurgeon said that he went on for about 10 minutes. And the man says, you will never find comfort in yourself. Look to Christ. Look unto me, the text said. Look unto me, I'm sweating drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on a cross. Look unto me, I was buried in the grave. Look unto me as I arose. Look unto me as now I'm ascended into heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father. Look unto me, look unto me. He said, and that preacher then turned towards him as he, he knew that I must have been a stranger in that place. And he said, young man, you look miserable. And Spurgeon said, I was. I was. He said he wasn't accustomed to remarks being made on his behalf. And he said that he began to shout as only a primitive Methodist preacher could look unto Christ, young man. Look unto Christ. And he said, and I found salvation that morning. I met Christ that morning, Spurgeon said. He said, I don't remember what anybody else said. I could not take notice of it because I was so possessed by the one thought of looking to Christ. Just like when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. And so it was with me. And he began to sing the words that ever since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supplied. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And that right there is the whole entire theme of John. You need to look 
because you're dying. Like the people of Israel bitten by the vipers, you don't need moral improvement. You don't need a religious booster this morning. You don't need a fresh start. You don't need to turn over a new leaf. The wrath of God is upon the sinners and death is over us and at work within us. And we need to look to Christ, the only one who can save you know, for the longest of times, I could not get a word away from the word saved. It bothered me, to be honest with you. It almost sounded a, a little redneckish to me. But the more I thought about it, I, I, I thought about some pudgy little preacher in a suit yelling out, you need to be saved from the pulpit. Yelling at the top of his lungs. But in light of the reality, though, what better word could replace saved? Helped? Come to Jesus and, and be helped, maybe? Improved? Enhanced? Come to Jesus and be enhanced? We don't need to be enhanced. We need to be saved. We need to be saved. We're dead in our sins, church. I remember one time someone asked me or, or said to me that Jesus was just my crutch. I was sharing the gospel with somebody who was very near and dear to me. And I remember them saying to me, well, Jesus is just your crutch. And I was like, no, Jesus is not my crutch. Jesus is my stretcher. Because there is no other way I could get into heaven unless he was carrying me there. I could not limp as a crutch to get into heaven. Jesus has to be my stretcher. He had to be my stretcher in order to get me there. And so church, I have a question this morning. Do you have a faith that is superficial or is Jesus your stretcher? Is he the way that you got to heaven? Is he the one that you look to? Is he the one that you follow? It's just like an immunization. Church, and maybe for some, that's all you've had. You've prayed the prayer. You walked the aisle, you checked the card, you raised the hand, you went to a class. None of those things make you born again. None of those things. Just because you attend church doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just, just because You can quote John 3.16 doesn't mean that you're a Christian. Hell will be full of a lot of people who could quote John 3.16. Hell will be full of a lot of people who were baptized. Hell will be full of a lot of people who read a couple of lines off of a, a card. But has, has the gospel virus infected you? Has, has God's life begin to work in you? 
Are you changing? You know, a, a virus. I'm a science guy. Um, I, I've studied and I, I've studied viruses and, and I still read medical journals to this day. A virus, especially a significant one, changes you internally. It changes you. When the gospel goes to work in you, you are changed. I've said it up here before. If the gospel hasn't changed you, the gospel hasn't saved you. If the gospel hasn't changed you, the gospel hasn't saved you. Listen, I'm talking about our minds being filled with holiness, with love with desire for God, and it's no longer filled with thoughts of self, no longer filled with thoughts of pride or lust. That's the change. And I don't mean to imply in any way that we, we come to a place of perfection here, that you never have to work at it. You're not going to wake up one morning and hop out of bed and begin to strum Chris Tomlin tunes on the harp that you keep next to your bed just because you prayed a prayer. But there is a the gospel life is at work in you and you're changing. Your, your spiritual temperature is rising. Your passion for godliness has changed. And you've become spiritually contagious. We get so freaked out because of our culture about sicknesses. And vaccines and doctor's visits and hospital visits. Man, could you imagine if we were no longer worried about a virus or a vaccine, but we were just spiritually contagious? Could you imagine what would happen in our culture, in our community? If we were worried, we were worried about who are we going to talk to next about the gospel instead of who's going to get us sick or who's going to take the vaccine or who's not going to take the vaccine? What if we were more worried about the people who were dying and going to hell? So I, I want to leave us with a question. Are you, are you the group of people that are described in, in John chapter 2? Or are, are you the person who is spiritually contagious? People are attracted to the Christ they see in you because it's genuine, it's authentic, it's real. There is no way in this life to encounter Jesus and not look different. There's no way. No way at all. And if that's true, which I believe it to be, then we should look to Jesus. Look to Jesus with true, surrendered, hopeful faith. Look to Jesus. See him. Surrender. Repent of our disbelief. Look to Jesus. And if you're sitting in here this morning, or you're online and you're listening and you're not convinced yet, then come and see this Jesus. Come and see over the next several weeks as we begin to break down more of this book. But I want to leave you with that challenge. Are, are you the contagious Christian? The spiritual one. Or are you the one that just wants another thing from Christ? That's between you and him. But it's a question that we, we should ask.
work out your salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Let's pray. Christ, we come to you this morning. And God, I'm asking for you to continue working in lives. To, to look at these scriptures, to, to have them come to remembrance in our mind, that we would meditate upon them. God, I, I pray that we would be true gospel followers, that we would have a gospel life, that our spiritual temperature would rise, that we would seek more and more after the things of you, that we would want to be changed to grow. God, you've called us to live holy lives, to be set apart for holy use. And so we pray for sanctification, Lord. And I sit and I wonder how often we truly do pray for you, God, to sanctify us, to chisel out of us all of the negative, the bad, the ways of the world. Lord, we want to be obedient to you. We want to take steps closer to you. Give us strength and courage to do so. Help us to not be weary in the well-doing, God. Help us to continue to submit, surrender to you. And give us gospel opportunities to be able to speak with people. Give us opportunities to share hope, truth, love, mercy, justice with people. Use us, God, as your instruments, as your vessels here in this community. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Church, we love you. Thank you guys for being here with us. We hope to see you guys back next Sunday as we continue on in this series. Um, if you need prayer um, or anything like that, we will be available uh, to you up here. If not, uh, you are sent. Don't forget youth groups tonight at 530.